I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Seton Smith. That ain't the point! You went to them stop signs! You know I can you know, give you a ticket. You know I can give you a ticket all them times, right? You know I can give you, oh, that's $250 for each ticket. That's me time. He's talking like fucking Eddie Murphy. He was just fucking going on me, right? Yeah. <laughs> that and more. But before that, just want to have a quick word about how going to the post office is so old school, my friends. There's such a hassle in going to that damn place. That's why over 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com to get the postage right from their desks whenever they need it 24 hours a day. Stamps.com turns your computer and printer into a virtual post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Stamps.com is just the better way to do your mailing and shipping. It's so easy to use. It lets you focus your time where you want it on growing your business instead of time-consuming trips to the post office. Have we covered that <laughs> is it established that going to the post office takes okay no wonder over two billion dollars in postage was printed just last year alone using stamps.com we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is oscar peterson well the oscar peterson trio with clark terry i'll have you know behind me now oh god we started off so well and now look where we are we're calling this week's episode not as it seems, folks. I'm really excited about how different 
the three voices on today's episode are three very different people with three very different ways of expressing themselves about, you know, situations where they thought they had someone pegged, but they dasn't. And that's not even a word. We're going to start with a story that was told recently at our Bell House show in Brooklyn. We're right back there at the Bell House on October 26th. This story comes to us from Rojo Perez. You can find him on Twitter at El Rojo Perez. And here he is now with a story we call Cock and Bull. Thank you. We in it? We good? Thank you guys for coming out, packing it out. Check your phone in the front. I love it. Okay. Um, that's all right, buddy. I know. I'm excited. Thank you guys for coming out. I love this podcast. I love the show. I've, um, I don't know if you can tell I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. Hold your applause. <laughs> one, one sad golf woo. Um, thank you. I don't know whether that people don't think I'm... I am. I don't know if it's because I sound like this or I don't have any kids. Like, I'm not sure what the reason is, but, like, it pops up. Don't get weird. Here we go. Uh, it's so weird because we're not all the same. Like, that's not, we're not all just loud. We all don't have, like, hoop earrings with our name in them. Like, that's not. <laughs> but I grew up there. I did. And um, this is a thing growing up in Puerto Rico. Uh, this is a fun thing. My brother used to fight roosters. That's a real... Well, he wouldn't fight roosters. It wasn't like a grown man punching a rooster in the face. That would be too Spanish. Um, <laughs> but he trained roosters to fight other roosters. That's a thing he did, and he's my bigger brother, and all I ever wanted to do was be just like him. And I begged him to give me one because I wanted to train it just like how he did. Really quick on a side note, I think it's funny. My brother would brag about how his roosters were undefeated. Like, he'd come home every Saturday and be like, oh, here comes another undefeated champ. Where it's like, yeah, if it's defeated, it doesn't come home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no rooster's ever been like, I got knocked down, but I got a new trainer now, and I cut out gluten. Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> My brother finally gave me one, and he told me what to do every day when I got home from school, how to train it, like, how to put the little booties on it, like, what to feed it, how to spar with it, like, all that stuff. And then every day when I got home from school, instead of doing that, I would pet it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, looking back, that was probably my bad. Because uh, the thing is, nobody's ever become champion out of too much love. Like, that's, no father loves both his parents. Like, that's not a thing. Um, but the one rule my brother had was you can't name it. You can't name it because you're going to get attached, and that's the thing you can't do. And my brother would call it Whitey. And at 10, I felt very uncomfortable with that. Um, so I was like, man, screw Whitey. Forget that noise. I'm going the opposite. I named it Benny Perez. Not only did I name it, I gave it first and last name. You in this family forever. <laughs> so every day when I got home from school, Monday through Thursdays, I'd go down and I'd visit Benny, and we'd talk about their days. And I'd be like, Benny, how was your day? And he'd be like, kiki-kiki, or like whatever <laughs> I do. 
And then I'd be, I would talk to him about why Esther Garcia paid me no attention in class that day. 20 years later, I still don't get it. I was an adorable 10-year-old with a beer gut. It was a cue this. Sometimes I'd stand like this. It was really... I was the original Manny from Modern Family. Like, that's what you're thinking of. Um, so we would do that Monday through Thursdays. And then on Fridays, we called it Freaky Friday. Fridays was different because I'd come down and I'd practice my dance moves. And I'd just dance for Benny. And that's what I'd do. And I would dance. And he'd watch because he was in a cage. So he had to watch. Okay, um... You get it, but he liked it. So I dance, and that's what we do. And I know it doesn't make sense to you guys right now, but 10-year-old me, it made perfect sense because next year was going to be the sixth grade dance, and what if I was there and Esther was sitting down and I saw her and I had a dope jam came on and be like, hey, Esther, would you like to dance? And she'd be like, oh, my God, you dance? And I'd be like, I dabble, but I danced a lot. Like, that would be, and she'd fall in love. And, like, that's my 10-year-old perfect logic. So that's what we did, and we did this for months. We did this for months till finally Benny got big. He made fight weight. He got big partly because he hadn't been training and partly because sometimes I gave him cheese doodles. Like, that's... I liked it, he liked them. Like, that was just in the family. Um, so that's what we did. He got big enough that it was time to take him in, and my brother, we took him, we got him in a box, and we got in the car... The thing was, I never told my brother I hadn't been training it. I don't know, but I still don't really know why. I don't know if it was like out of fear that I thought my brother would yell at me, or I just thought that Benny would be like a natural athlete. <laughs> like some Air Bud shit where he would just figure it out. But it's like, I'm a good athlete. Why wouldn't he be a good athlete? He has the Perez last name. Why wouldn't he be a good athlete right now? So, but we put him in the box, and we drove over, and it was like, it was like an abandoned warehouse. It's this huge, like, abandoned warehouse, and it's like, it's a dusty road, and it's, it was full of, like, old men, and it smelled like Budweiser's and empanadas. Like, that's what was in the air, and it was sticky. You ever walk in somewhere, and it's just sticky? Not the surface, the air. It's just sticky. Like, is someone spraying butter? Like, what is this right now? Like, can I get diabetes through breathing? Like, that's what it felt like. And then everybody, we walk in, and old men are just yelling, and they're betting, and they're, like, watching the roosters fight. And we saw, like, four or five, and it was time to bring Benny in, and it was time for his fight. Before we brought him in, the other rooster came out first. When the other rooster was coming out, a theme song started playing. <laughs> he had intro music. <laughs> Like a great wrestler, like the Rock of Cox. Like that's what he had. And the owner brought him out and he held him up. He had him up like, like baby Simba, like the chosen one. Like, and the old men went apeshit. Like they knew who they were betting for. Like they knew who the favorite in this was. And then it was our turn to bring out Benny. And nobody told me about the pre-show show. Nobody told me there was a musical aspect to the event. Do you know how embarrassing silence is to a 10-year-old who loves to dance? <laughs> that was my one thing, and I couldn't even get that right. So it was just a Benny a box and silence. It felt like a funeral, like we knew what was gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, like foreshadowing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we put the box down, and we opened it, and Benny like climbs out, and I'll never, he climbs out and he sees the other rooster, and he has a look of just like, oh, cool. <laughs> like another one to me. Like, oh, a friend. And Benny goes up to like sniff him to say hello. Beep. 
ding, the bell rings, and as he gets close, whoa, gets smacked. And he gets smacked across the face, and when he gets smacked, he like turns, and we're like this way, and he has this look of just like, why would he do that? Um, we didn't train for this at all. What? He hasn't said Esther's name, not once. What is happening right now? And then I guess Benny was just like, well, maybe I was disrespectful. I approached him the wrong way. So now Benny came in through the left, and Benny comes in, whoa, gets smacked again. And it smacks him, and it cuts him. And it's fucking crazy because it gets cut. And the thing is, people say that, like, roosters are dumb, and I don't believe so. Because something clicked in Benny when he got cut. Something clicked that, like, oh, if I move, I won't get hit. Like, he figured that, like, he didn't figure out how to punch back, but he figured out how to avoid getting hit. So like Benny just started moving and he was like working the circle and he started moving and he was just working. The other rooster was like coming up and swinging and missing and swinging and missing. And Benny's now moving and he's coming up. He's like, pa, coming close and then moving out. And he's doing that shit. He's like coming in, pa, hits him and comes back out. And he circles around and Benny's like, pa, pa. He sees it and the old men start getting like, a, like there's like an energy in the room now. Like they're not ready to bench against their rooster, but they feel there might be an upset. Like that's what's in the air. And I'm just watching, he's doing this shit and Benny's going in like, pa, and coming back out and he rocks it out. He pa, pa, locks it and comes through out. And 10 year old me is just like, is Benny dancing right now? <laughs> like I can't say where he learned it from. But they say you learn at the home. That's all they say. But I'm watching it, and Benny's just like, pa, avoiding hits, and the other rooster's starting to get tired. And Benny's like, pa, locking and coming through, and he's moving around, and he's swinging, lock and come back, and the old men are still, like, getting excited, and Benny comes in, he figures something, pa, headbutts him. And he headbutts the other rooster, and now the old men start getting real excited, and I don't know what to fucking do right now. And the old men start going, fuck, fuck, I want the white one, I want the white one. And my 10-year-old self is just like, his name's Benny, he sees no color, it's Benny right now. And the old men are like, yeah, Benji, we want Benji. I was like, ah, so close, okay. So Benny's rocking, and he comes up, he's like, hits him again and now the old men start going Benji 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 and I'm like it's one fucking leather how do you not figure this out right now ah and then Benny comes up he's rocking and he's going and he hits him bah he hits him and he knocks him back and now I am losing my 10 year old fucking mind right now because I am the rooster whisperer like do you get that I figured a way to make this happen? That's insane. And Benny comes up, and he goes around, and he, bah, he hits him again, and he knocks him down, and he goes for that, like, ah, like that shit that roosters do, and it's fucking crazy. He goes like, ah. And guys, I'm fucking with you. Benny died. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, he got killed real quick. Uh, <laughs> he lost so fast, you would have thought he threw the fight. Like that. You would have thought Benny owed people money. Like that. <laughs> and it's a weird thing to realize you raised the world's only emo rooster. Um, and it is, I guess, kind of a sad story but I bet you guys think I'm pretty Puerto Rican now. <laughs> guys, thanks for coming out of the show. Have a good night. Bye. <laughs>
This is Risk. This is the Rumble Strips behind me now, and we just heard from Rojo Perez. Now, listen, we have all done strange things to earn extra cash. I have told stories on Risk about how I was the museum guard that touched all the art, the cater waiter who drank all the booze, and the prostitute who had all the sex but failed to collect the cash. Believe it or not, there are better ways you can earn extra money on the side. And one way in particular is Uber. Uber is the ultimate side hustle. Driving with Uber is the new way you can earn extra cash whenever you want. It's a totally flexible way to earn. You can turn it on and off just like your car. If you have a few spare hours here or there, drive with Uber. Have you ever wanted to be your own boss? You'd be a great boss, I believe. I, I never thought I would be one, but look at me. I'm, I'm gorgeous. Listen, you might be driving right now. You could be earning money doing it. I would do it, except I'm terrified of getting a license. I tried once when I was 16 and everyone agreed I should never try again. That's why I take Uber all over the place. And did you know that every day is payday? When you drive with Uber, you can cash out anytime with Instant Pay. With access to Instant Pay, cash out your earnings up to five times a day with no minimum amount required. So listen, if you enjoy earning extra cash, if there's something special you'd like to buy, your car can start making you money. So go ahead, get your side hustle on. Sign up to drive with Uber today. Go to uber.com slash drive now. That's uber.com slash drive now. U-B-E-R dot com slash drive now. One more thing I want to tell you about. This is another really ingenious new product. You'll find it at awaytravel.com. Basically, these two entrepreneurs, they found themselves stuck at JFK with the plane delayed and their phones ran out of juice. And they thought, why not create a carry-on bag that can charge your phone. It's the suitcase that Vogue calls the perfect carry-on. And like other online companies today, they can use the highest quality materials because they've cut out the middleman and can sell directly to you. All suitcases made with premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistant and very lightweight. The interior features a patent-pending compression system for overpackers. The wheels spin 360 degrees. Lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, Away Travel will fix or replace it for you for life. And it's a 100-day trial. Live with it, vibe with it, travel with it, Instagram it. If at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund, no questions asked. I tried it and was able to recharge my phone multiple times during one trip. So for $20 off your order, visit awaytravel.com slash risk and use the promo code risk during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash risk and use the promo code risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from the absolutely lovely Geraldine Buckley, who you can find online at GeraldineBuckley.com. But before that, Seton Smith, comedian based in New York, he told this one at the Bell House in Brooklyn, story we call, Yes, Officer.
this story is going to be about cops. Now, I'm not sure how I feel. Um, my girlfriend recently called the police under uncomfortable circumstances. Now, I don't know. I feel like in America right now, especially now we can talk openly about this, there are two types of people in America when it comes to cops, right? If one of those type of people sees a problem on the street, they'll go to themselves, there's a problem. I need to call the cops. Now, there's a second type of person that see, they see that same problem, they'll stop and ask themselves, do I want to complicate this with cops? Or I got a little weed in my pocket. My friend has a prior. Uh, man, they'll find that baby. Let them sort it out, baby. <laughs> My girlfriend, though, she's the opposite. She's, uh, she calls cops, that's her thing. Because she's, you know, she's kind of like a white woman. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess not kind of, kind of like you, man. Kind of super white, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, you seem kind of purebred. I don't be offensive. <laughs> I'm sorry, white woman seems too harsh. Let's say woman of white. That make you feel better? I feel better. Hell yeah, man. My girlfriend, yeah, she calls cops. She, cause she, you know, she, I don't know. She trusts them. For me, I have a complicated relationship with cops. Uh, first time I really uh, had to deal with cops, I was four years old, and my mother was dropping off my brother at his grandmother's house in Indio. I got to use all these specific words because, you know, baby daddies and all that shit, right? So, like, his grandma in Indio were dropping him off. Suddenly, I hear, get the fuck on the ground! And I look up, and I realize the apartment complex that was once empty is now full of a SWAT team, all right? Like, helicopters, uh, canines. There was one dude with a flashlight and a, and a rifle in my car, because I was, like, uh, sitting there as a four-year-old boy in the back seat. My brother had walked across the street to go see his dad, and my mom was just kind of sitting there talking, and I had no shoes on. So, you know, at that point, I'm sitting in the back of the car. But then, you know, all of a sudden, there's nothing, and me, and the gun, and, uh, and uh, rifles. And I look over, and I see my brother. He's on the ground, and he has a gun to his back. And my mother, for some weird reason, was let go free. Like, no, they didn't nobody fuck with her. And she lost her fucking mind. She was flipping out. I was just so weird because it was weird to see like I don't know what kind of guns cops have they look like AR-15s but you know machine guns and it's just so weird to see my mom this is like only like five foot kind of flipping out on this old big old white guy with a gun in the face it was really kind of cool that's not my mom was that strong anyways that was the first time I was in a drug bus second time I uh, was actually 18 years old and I'm telling you all these stories crowd to understand that like okay that time oh I found out that drug bus um, apparently was um, the cops apparently got the wrong address so it was completely, nobody had done any drugs. I wasn't part of a drug game. My family wasn't part of it. They cops were just like, oh shit, the crack house is over there. My bad. And that was it. And so, uh, <laughs> and my mother found this out and she flipped out like crazy. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> she was in his face. And, and the cop just the whole time was just like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You know, just shit happens. You know, shit happens. You know, he didn't seem, I've seen a lot of cartoons and cops are always like heroes. Like, yeah, you know, save the bad guy. But this nigga was like, well, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just so... Uh, so that was my feeling. I was like, okay, cops are not, they're not evil, but they ain't on cartoons. So fast forward to 18 years old, and I've gone through a lot of, you know, fuck the police phase in teenage years, right? But now I'm just like, let me just be myself, mind my own business. I go to Washington, D.C. from New Jersey, and uh, my first day at Howard University. Howard University in 2001, this is before D.C. got gentrified, so there's still that angle of just, you know, pure crack. And so... Uh, <laughs> Just a long layer of crack. Like, literally, I saw in 2000, when I was doing Howard, the Howard orientation consisted of them talking to a freshman. I, all right, listen, right now, you are on this street. If you walk one block south, you will be shot. Do not walk down that street. 
<laughs> if you look to your east, <laughs> if you walk down that street, you will also get shot. Do not walk down that. That was my orientation. I was scared as fuck. I ain't leave my house <laughs> for like three, four months. I found out they were exaggerating. Only two people really got shot. Like everybody else, like <laughs> everybody else lived and got wounded. So like, uh, <laughs> so in D.C. that was weird because I was walking first day. I decided I wanted to go to the DC Improv to see Wayne Brady. And this is back when he was hot. And so uh, <laughs> I'm about to go see Wayne Brady. So I'm like 18-year-old guy, about to walk down to the subway. And suddenly I just see a bunch of crackheads just walking. like, And then I'm just walking through. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm 18. So I'm just walking, trying to, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And all of a sudden, I hear a cop go, you, 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 get on the, get on the wall, get on the wall. And this crowd is when I learned the first lesson on how to deal with cops. If you ever on the street and you hear a cop yell, you, get on the wall. Don't do some dumb shit like this. Turn around and go, me? Because if you're a young black Negro, they do mean you. And so uh, that's what they did. Put me on the wall and he's patting me down. He was like, what the fuck are you doing here? What are you doing here? I was like, I, I just walked into the subway. I don't even know what you're going. I, just, I don't even know. It's my second day at school. And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, really? And he pulled my wallet out, saw my ID, and he was like, oh, you're going to Howard University. And he looked at me with the most sincere face like, so, how do you like DC? And I was <laughs> it's, it's good, officer, it's good. Um, I don't know, again, complicated conversation with cops. I don't know, are they people, are they evil, are they just? I think the first time I really got maybe in trouble with cops, like I might have gotten some shit. It was really small, it was in, um, I was in Rindo Mills, Maryland. It was like a night show. I was doing, trying to do comedy, it was a night show and Rundle Mills, Maryland has this, this mall that's just huge. It's really one of those big ones that you know you kind of go there for all day long because you have nothing else going for you. Like one of those malls, factory outlets, right? So it was an empty parking lot though, right? And I'm just driving through, but it was one of those big parking lots that had stop signs, right? And so I'm like, you know, there's nobody around. Fuck them stop signs. So I'm just driving through. I'm not even thinking about the stop signs. There's nobody here. Who am I stopping for? Ghost? No. So I'm just driving. That's what I'm going through my head, right? And then suddenly I hear whoop whoop, and I'm looking up, like, what the fuck? A cop, right? I just pull over, and I'm with my friends, right? I got, like, two of my boys with me, right? And, like, they're two. I'm not going to say I'm from the good side of the tracks. I'm not bad. I'm just, you know, I just, I'm, I'm alive. These two friends, though, they were, like, straight hood. They enjoyed it. Like, listen, man, I used to sell crack. I'm hood. But they're not now. Point being, this cop comes to the car, and he's black. And I don't know what happened, but he came with his ego. You ever met cops that just come, like, all of a sudden? They don't want to help you. They're just like, I'm the law. He kind of came with that. <laughs> Lord, do you know how many stop signs you went through? And I was just like, but sir, it's just a parking lot. That ain't the point. You went to them stop signs. You know, I can, you know, I can, I can give you a ticket. You know, I can give you a ticket all the times, right? You know, I can give you, oh, that's $250 for each ticket. That's me time. He's talking like fucking Eddie Murphy. He was just fucking going on me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, sir, I just, I don't even know what's going on. And I'm just trying to win. And all of a sudden, my boy, right, he's just bigger. He just, all of a sudden, he just says with a very calm voice, I'm sorry, officer. And all of a sudden, everything got real quiet. And I just, it felt like his voice came through me, and I was just like, I'm sorry, officer. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again, officer. <laughs> and the cop was almost weirded out, like, oh, oh, okay, well then, well, don't do it again. He walked away, and I was like, and I looked at my friend, like, what the fuck have you been through, nigga? You know what I mean? Because, like, but you got to conjure up them dark feelings, like, I ain't going back to jail. You better handle this. Like, what? That's what I felt. So, I'm sorry, I'm saying all this, so again, complicated conversation with the cops. So let me just, let's fast forward to a couple weeks ago, um, my girlfriend, a white girlfriend, in um, <laughs> Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in this white, gentrified apartment building. 
we had a neighbor who, uh, I like my apartment. I'm proud of it. I'm 34. I've worked hard for my apartment. Our next door neighbor is a 23-year-old um, little white girl who just fucking got it. And I, uh, <laughs> listen, listen, I understand we all have different economic situations, but fuck her. And like, <laughs> this bitch got the backyard. How's she gonna get a backyard? She's 23 years old. She ain't done shit with her life. Anyway, so like, Point being, very nice neighbor, nice girl. And she... <laughs> so one night we come home and we find our nice neighbor. Um, she's looking kind of pale and she's with another dude looking equally pale. But I just figure, fuck it, they're raving. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to bother them. I, but they're just standing outside of her apartment building. I'm like, are you all right? She's like, we just lost our keys. I don't know. It's okay. It's okay. She's really pale. It's okay. She's whispering away. I'm like, all right. You all better be all right. And I go in my house and I don't know, like maybe an hour goes by and I keep hearing rustling. I keep hearing, like, I'm like, keep more wrestling. I'm like, where's the, where's the, where's the key guy at? Where? I mean, are they fucking? I don't know, what are they doing? Like, it just sounded like real weird. And I look out there, and she's just kind of walking around randomly, and I don't see the guy. And then maybe 30 minutes go by, and all of a sudden, she's just kind of hitting doors. And all of a sudden, 30 minutes go by, and she's just, she's making noises. Yeah, I found out later that she took LSD, I think, and didn't have any backup plan. Like, apparently that, like, she had nobody, no safety net. And she's just out there, just, ah! Fucking gone, all right? Gone. And my girlfriend, she's been sober eight years. And so she's looking at this woman, like, seeing herself. She's like, we need to help her. And I was been a whore for the last three. And, like, I've chased girls like that. And I'm like, fuck that. And, uh, <laughs> but she wants to help. And I'm like, I don't want to. And, and then as we're arguing, we hear another dude out there, our neighbor. Um, I shouldn't say his name. That's a motherfucker. Uh, we'll call him white guy, who was about... Five eight, and I just hear him talking to her, just like, "Is everything okay?" And he's really drunk. Again, it's four o'clock in the morning. He's drunk. He's going, "Are you okay?" I just, I just let me in, and he, and he's like, "But what's wrong? You're in. You're in here already." <laughs> All right, and that's when she hit him. Right, and she just knocked him. Right, <laughs> knocked the shit up. Just hit his nose. He's bleeding everywhere. Right, and me and my girl come out because we hear a rustle, and we all we see is this white hallway covered in blood. This 5'8 man holding down this like 5'4 girl, blood just gushing on her. And he looks up and he's like, call the police, right? <laughs> and my first thought is, nigga, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. You're holding down a girl covered in blood. Nigga, run. Like, like. <laughs> you got to go. This is not going to be cleared up. They're going to shoot you. <laughs> Have you seen videos, nigga? Like, this is, uh, so. <laughs> but he looks at me righteously like, no, they need to see this. This needs to be handled. I'm like, how old are you? Why are you talking like that? So like, and so I'm like, hey man, well, good luck to you. So I walk inside again, like, I don't want to be part of that. <laughs> my girl calls, she uses my phone, calls the police, and then a few minutes go by. Because <laughs> I'm not out there. I'm like, nah. And like, uh, and all of a sudden I hear, hello? Excuse me? Yeah. And my girl's like, go fucking talk to him. I'm like, all right, what's up, man? He's like, well, the cops at the door. Can, can you let him in? And again, no, no, like, the door, there was a window, so the cop actually looked in, saw what was going on, but still, I'm like, have you, I've, I've been around cops. These motherfuckers can fucking die, and then later talk about it. So I was like, I don't want to open the door. And he's like, no, open the door. So I got really nervous. I step over them, and I open the door, and this fucking blew my fucking mind, because as he's holding this woman down, covered in blood, he looks up at the cop and goes, you want me to let her up? And the cop looks around and goes, nah, let me figure out what's going on first. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how white people get it, nigga? 
like that. I'm not going to be racist about this. I think we're cops. I feel like, I guess I've lived a long enough life. I just realize they're just people, you know? You just hope that when shit's going down, you get a good one, not a bad one, you know? That's all you can, can hope for, so. That time, at four in the morning, we got a good one, so just hopefully <laughs> the next time, the one's good, too. Peace, man. so much. Well, when I was 17, I was in high school in Oxford in England, and I got a part in a university production of King Lear. I was Goneril. And the young man who got the part of Edmund was a university student. He was 20, and he was built like a Greek god. <laughs> and he became my first boyfriend. And so I love to watch him, but particularly watch him rehearse. And there's a part in Act Two that just thrilled me. He was by himself on the stage, and he was talking about Edmund. Edmund is illegitimate. That means that he's always the underdog. And he throws his head back and he cries out, Now, God, stand up for bastards. And something happened in me listening to him because I've been standing up for bastards ever since. <laughs> Underdogs have always been my thing. Well, many, many years later, I had a Damascus Road experience, a spiritual enlightenment, if you will. I fell irrevocably in love with Jesus, gave up my PR business, went to Bible school, and became a minister. And then I got a job as the Protestant chaplain of the largest men's prison in Maryland. A dream job for anybody who loves underdogs. <laughs> there were 2,700 of them. <laughs> but it never crossed my mind when I was training for this job that after just a few weeks on the job, I will be sitting in my office across my desk from the leader of the Crips, which most of you will know is one of the most violent street gangs in the history of gangs in America. No, I had no idea. No idea. I'd be sitting across from him, and I'd be asking for his help with a problem. Well, when that day came, I did what I do best in those kind of situations. I made him a cup of tea. <laughs> but I really did have a problem. The midweek Bible service that had about 240 men in it had become a meeting place for the gangs, particularly the Crips. Now, the front part of the chapel was fine. Amazing things were happening. That's where men were opening themselves up to the love and forgiveness of God. So they were able to extend that love and forgiveness to other people. I remember I had one big hunking man in my office, and he told me that he had longed to hear his mother tell him that she loved him. But he hadn't talked to her for 10 years because she wouldn't take his calls and a group of the men in the chapel prayed for him. And he said that just a few days before, his mother had accepted the charges 
He'd spoken to her, and she had told him that she loved him. And that big man was almost in tears in my office. And then we had sentences that were reduced, and people who never thought they'd get parole, that they got that parole. Incredible things were happening at the front of the chapel. It was just at the back of the chapel that we had such a problem with the crypts because they were passing things and they were talking loudly. Well, they were disturbing the service, and I couldn't have that, but there was another level to the problem, and that is that if the correctional officers, the guards, if they realized what a serious gang problem we actually had, they would take away the service from us, and we might not get it back for months. They'd close it down. Well, of course, I wasn't going to let that happen if I could possibly help it. Now, I could have taken all those crip leaders off the list. In other words, banned them from the service. But I didn't want to. I mean, I was the chaplain. I mean, to me, unless they sat under the word of God, what hope would they have of changing? So that's why I decided to go to the root of the problem. And that's how come I was sitting in my office across my desk from the leader of the Crips. Let's call him El Jefe. <laughs> He's still there. I can't tell you his real name. <laughs> But Hefe was about 35. He was African American. He was from Baltimore. And I knew I only had him in my office for 20 minutes because he'd arrived at half past two and he had to leave by 10 to three in order to get back to his cell in time for count. And if he wasn't there in time, he'd be taken off to the segregation unit in chains. So I thought, how am I going to get my point across in such a short amount of time? I mean, after all, we're so different. I mean, for a start, he's a man, I'm a woman. He's been incarcerated for years, and he's got years to go, and I'm relatively new at all this. And he's a crip, and I'm a Pentecostal. <laughs> and then I had an idea. I said, I've got a really soft spot for gangs. <laughs> well, at the time, he was slumped back in his chair. He was gently tapping the side of my desk. And he was looking at me through half-closed eyes, and he didn't change a thing about what he was doing. So I knew he hasn't bought it. He hasn't bought it. So I said, Hefe, let me tell you a story. When I was 21, I went on a bus trip from North Finchley Tube Station in London to Delhi, India. It was called Budget Bus. It was bright pink, it was decrepit, it was held together with duct tape, but it was cheap. Now, I went for two reasons. First of all, I really wanted something on my resume that would set me apart from my fellow graduates the following year. And secondly, I really wanted to irritate my mother. <laughs> well, we were going to be traveling together for six weeks. So I was really interested in seeing who my fellow traveling companions were going to be, because we'd be sleeping in tents by the side of the road, we'd be eating together. And so I was really perturbed when I first got on the bus, and my initial impression was of a strong smell of unwashed bodies. Well, I looked to see where it was coming from, and it was this small group of men. They were very thin. They had hollow eyes, and they had trap marks going up and down their arms. Well, these were drug addicts. And at the end of the bus, I talked to someone who'd been on the bus, and they told me that one of those guys was going to die on a beach in Sri Lanka. 
And then there was another guy that I noticed the moment I got on that bus. He was a small, weasley little man. He sat right at the back. I knew straight away from his accent that he was Australian. And I found out later that his name was Wayne. Well, from the moment I got on that bus, he kept up this loud, continuous monologue of the filthiest language I have ever heard before or since. And then he was a real charmer. He would hang out the window and he'd spew abuse at women as we were passing by. He would call them by very intimate female anatomical names. He'd also tell them exactly what he'd like to do to them. You all get my drift. And he did this all the way through Europe. He did it into Turkey. I think he stopped when we got to Iran, thank goodness. But he was horrendous. That was Wayne. Now, there was about 25 or so other men and women on that bus, but there was another group of men that I immediately noticed. They were wearing denim and leather and chains. They were covered in tattoos. They had shaved heads, and they had a really hard look on their faces. These were the Hell's Angels. Now, it must be said these were English Hell's Angels. So they were a little more refined than their American counterparts, but they were still Hell's Angels. And they absolutely terrified me, particularly their leader, who was called Grilla. Grilla was this huge man, enormous, and he couldn't read or write. He had his name tattooed on his knuckles, G-R-I-L-A. And he had this enormous tattoo of a gravestone on his arm with the names of men. And I looked at the names of those men and I thought, are they the names of the men that he's killed? He, he absolutely terrified me. Grilla terrified me. But that bus was far worse than I could have ever imagined on that first day. Wayne, the Australian, and his new group of friends discovered that down the aisle of the bus, there was a trap door. And when the bus was moving, they would have urinating contests. And if anybody objected, they would turn the flow on them. And then for some reason, Wayne thought it would be great fun to pick on me. So he started up a new, loud, continuous monologue, describing in vivid detail what he imagined I did as extracurricular activity. So if you're thinking the very worst, yes, you've absolutely got that right. Yes. Well, I was only 21, and this went on for day after day after day. On well, one of those days, I was sitting near the back of the bus, playing Scrabble with Wayne's new girlfriend. She and I had shared a tent together the first few days of the bus. And he said something disgusting to her, something really revoltingly filthy. And stupidly, I defended her. Well, he pushed me back in my seat, and then he picked up his big fist to hit me. When all of a sudden, over my shoulder came this enormous hand, and it grabbed Wayne's wrist and a voice said, No, you don't. You're not hitting women, not on my turf. And Wayne just crumpled. He said, no, you don't. He said, he said no, no, he said, don't, don't, don't hurt me. Don't, don't hurt me. Well, that night, I was by myself on the bus. All the rest were setting the campsite up. And Grilla came to find me. And he was shuffling his feet a bit, and he had his cap in his hand, and he was twisting it. And he kept his eyes on the ground. And he said... Geraldine, I'm really sorry I didn't do more to help you on that bus today, he said, but 
If we men start hitting each other, someone's going to get killed. Well, several things happened because of that. First of all, Wayne kept really quiet at the back of the bus. We hardly had a peep out of him for the rest of the trip. It was wonderful. And then that was the first time that I realized that although it's best for men and women to work together, sometimes you need a man to stand up and do what's right. And when that happens, it's like a key turns in a lock and evil turns to good. And then the other thing that happened was that Grilla and his group of Hells Angels friends, they took me under their wing and I became the little sister of the gang. <laughs> All really innocent. So that meant I got to hang with them. I got to see what they were really like. I got to spend time with them. And, and there was one time, I'll never forget this, we had to go through a lot of border stops because of the trip. And so you had to fill out a huge amount of paperwork. Well, if you remember, I told you that Grilla didn't read or write. And so his friend John would go along with him. And he'd always say, well, I've got extra ones and I've got the pen. I might as well just fill it out for you. And he'd fill out all the forms. And I noticed he would have never known that Grilla was illiterate if you didn't know. It was an incredible honoring towards him. And I discovered in many ways that they really did care for each other. They were family. And so there was, there was one day I asked Grilla about that tattoo in his arm, the one of the gravestone with the RIP and the names of men. He said, oh, Geraldine, he said, they're my, my fallen comrades. They're my dead friends. If we don't look out for each other, who will? Well, at that moment, I, Hefe, back in my office, shifted a bit in his chair and was a shadow came across the glass in the door of my office, and it was the correctional officer. And he opened the door and he said, Chaplain, he said, you've got three more minutes with this man, and then he's got to get back to his cell in time for count. And I said, thank you, officer. I thought, how am I going to get my point across, my last point, in such a short amount of time? Tick, tick, tick. I don't know if that was the, my heart or the clock. And then I had another idea. I said, Hefe, I said, you and your fellow gang members, you've been teaching me such a lot since I've been here about gangs, about street corners, about turf. Now, tell me if this is right or not. But from what I understand, you'd never let another gang come in and take your street corner. Is that right? Oh, he said, that's right, chaplain. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. Well, I said, Hefe, this midweek Bible service, this is our land, the inmate leaders of this church and mine. And by you and your friends doing what you're doing, you're drawing the attention of the correctional officers. And if you carry on doing it, they're going to take it away from us. Now, it would break my heart to take you and your fellow crit leaders off the list. In other words, ban you from the service. But if that's what I've got to do, I'll do it. Because no one is taking this land away from me. And we just stared at each other. <laughs> tick, tick, tick. A shadow came across the glass in the door of my office. And Heffy said, it's all right, chaplain. He said, I get it. There'll be no more trouble. I give you my word. And you know something? Heffy kept his word. There was no more gang trouble in the Protestant chapel from that moment till the time I left almost two and a half years later. No more trouble 
on my turf. <laughs> Thank you. This week, folks, this is Daniel Merriweather behind me now, and we just heard from Geraldine Buckley. You can find more of her stories at GeraldineBuckley.com. She's got three whole CDs of stories, including a lot more about the work that she has done with prisoners in prisons. Always a fascinating subject. And don't forget to get your side hustle on. Sign up to drive with Uber and earn extra cash whenever you want. It's totally flexible. You're your own boss. You can cash out up to five times a day. No minimum amount required. Sign up today at uber.com slash drive now. That's U-B-E-R dot com slash drive now. Let us now review where Risk is appearing next on October 26th. We are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's going to be an amazing show. Charles Bush, the legendary Broadway maestro, Charles Bush, will be there. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans. And listen, we're still taking pitches for that New Orleans show. So if you have friends down there in New Orleans, tell them to pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. That's November 11th in New Orleans. On November 12th, we're in Baltimore. Come out and see us, Baltimore. On November 18th, we're in Chicago. We are still taking pitches for that Chicago show as well. We have lots of friends, and we've been in Chicago a lot, but we'd love to hear from some new people. So pitch us. The theme that night is Frenzy. And, of course, we're at wristshowcom slash submissions. On January 27th, we are back in San Francisco. And on February 17th, this is a ways out, but we'll be back in Carborough, North Carolina. We can take pitches for that as well. <laughs> Although it looks like I haven't chosen a theme yet. So why don't I choose the theme for Carborough in February right now? How about the theme that night is... What? That's W-H-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-
That's Facebook at Risk Show again. You can comment on the show on the comment section at iTunes or at our site, risk-show.com. But whatever you do, get involved and spread the word and, and, and let us know what you're thinking. Okay? Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Anyways, you know I can give you a ticket. You know I give you a ticket. That's me time. You know I can give you a ticket. You know I give you a ticket. That's me time. You know I can give you a ticket. You know I give you a ticket. That's me time. You know I can give you a ticket. You know I give you a ticket. That's me time. Oh,